Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to The Crucible, your one-stop shop for hearing all the theological ramblings of your favorite uh, pastor, hopefully one of your favorite pastors, Justin Rumley, here. It is a privilege uh, to be uh, with you this afternoon, wherever you are. We have some important theological issues to cover today, issues that many are not even thinking about, much less discussing in our culture, but these are issues of eternal importance, and I am so glad that you have lended your ear to me this afternoon. This past month, we have been diving into Reformation history. October is Reformation Month after all. Again, as I mentioned in last week's episode, October 31st is the date where we famously remember uh, Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on that church door that sparked what we now call the Reformation. It's been 506 years since that moment, and Protestantism, or the churches that sprang from the Reformation, are stronger than ever. But today, I want to interact with you uh, on an aspect of the Reformation uh, that really doesn't get touched on. An aspect that if you're a Protestant who enjoys history, uh, you've probably wrestled with before. Uh, In fact, I want to start with a comment from a a famous uh, Protestant convert to Roman Catholicism named John Henry Newman, where he famously said to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And my Roman Catholic friends love to uh, lob this statement at their Protestant counterparts in uh, an aggressive way at many times. And uh, when I first began my study of church history, I kind of ran into this conundrum thinking, uh, well, I hear from from Catholic apologetics websites that the Reformation uh, is only 500 years old, uh, that Reformation doctrine was unknown in church history, and again, like what John Henry Newman said to be deeper in history, deeper than 500 years ago with Martin Luther, to go even deeper, even further back, well, you're going to cease to be Protestant if you study too much history. Um, And so I I decided to engage with history for myself, and uh, this is purely anecdotal and experiential, but I would be happy to back this up with my findings. But um, let me encourage you, if you're a Protestant today, because I have found that the deeper in history I go, the more convinced of a Protestant that I am. Well, I mentioned in uh, my second episode of The Crucible that I believe Protestants do church history better because we don't have to make everyone who came before us look, look, uh, sound, and smell exactly like us. Our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends have to do that. Therefore, it leads to bending and molding and just playing the game of twister with history to make uh, church fathers bend and believe things uh, that they never uh, meant to, that they never taught, they never thought. But for many of these systems to be upheld, they need history to say something that it doesn't. So again, in this backdrop of, 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 of many Roman Catholic apologists that says, Protestant, if you just read church history past 500 years, you will become Roman Catholic. Um, I can assure you with the utmost sincerity of heart that that couldn't be further from the truth. 
that when we read the church fathers, especially in the first six centuries, we find many Protestant beliefs, or at least many beliefs that sound um, eerily similar to what Protestantism would become. Now, this doesn't mean there weren't uh, seeds of Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox beliefs in the fathers. Keep in mind, Protestants don't make the fathers their standard. Scripture alone is. But we could easily, within the first six centuries, I could demonstrate essentially every Protestant doctrine, or at least the vast majority, um, at least as many Protestant doctrines as my Roman Catholic friends can their beliefs in the fathers. But one thing I found as a Protestant in church history that even if I feel comfortable in the first six centuries, and I feel comfortable in the last 500 years or so since Martin Luther, what do we do with the, the thousand years, so to say, between the sixth century and the 16th? If we say, for example, Augustine, who held to many beliefs that Protestants would agree with. And Augustine died in the uh, early 5th century, so uh, about four, just in the early to mid 400s. Um, if we take him and maybe a generation or two after him as kind of the end of the the period known as the Church Fathers, so we'll just say the, the 6th century, so the year 500, what do we do with that thousand years, that millennium between the 6th century and the 16th century when Martin Luther came on the scene? Uh, what happened? Are those just theological dark ages? Was Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy just thriving and there was no semblance of a Protestant belief in that millennium? And I wrestled with this and uh, thought through what, um, what does history actually teach on this? And saints, I was surprised by what I found. Again, I had the expectation, according to popular uh, Roman Catholic apologists, that before Martin Luther, I would find a whole lot of nothing that sounded even similar to Protestant. But again, let me encourage my Reformation brethren here that that couldn't be further from the truth. Saints, let me share with you just the tip of the iceberg of some of my historical studies here, where we can find truly that uh, God did not leave his gospel and those biblical truth that we hold near and dear to our hearts in the Reformation, that God did not leave the church without any witness to that. So again, we have many of the church fathers holding to basic biblical beliefs that the Reformation would agree with. The last half millennium, we've had Protestantism witness to that belief. And certainly within the thousand years between the 6th and the 16th century, there were many who were, even though they were within the Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox Church, they still held to many beliefs that we would strongly consider Protestant by nature. Um, but I'm not going to get into those who stayed within the church. I, I, I want to stress that there were three distinct groups that came um, anywhere from 100 to 400 years, essentially, before the Reformation that uh, witnessed to, to things that sounded eerily similar to what the Reformation would teach. So, uh, this might be a little nerdy for some of us, but if you are into church history, you'll love this episode. Let me start with a group called the Waldensians. The Waldensians were a group found in Italy, started by uh, an individual named Peter Waldo um, in the late 12th century. So, we're talking... Um, about 1173 is when some historians depict Peter Waldo as having this awakening type epiphany moment. Um, 
where where basically Peter Waldo was an individual who felt the church was too rich, uh, the church was too privileged, that the church was not taking care of the poor, and he would read the New Testament, specifically the Beatitudes. It would say Jesus uh, cared for the poor. Jesus cared for the less fortunate. Jesus and the apostles were not sitting on thrones during their earthly ministry. They did not have all this pomp and circumstance and wealth. Uh, the church of his day had massive churches, but seemingly— in Peter's opinion, ignored the poor. So Peter Waldo, and yes, I always think of where's Waldo as well. So if you're thinking of that, it's okay. Peter Waldo um, was, again, an individual that in 1173 had this epiphany that something in Christianity had to change. So he kickstarted this movement where basically his followers embraced a Christianity that they felt was more biblical. So they um, gave away their possessions to the poor. Um, in fact, Peter himself was a wealthier man and he gave away his possessions. And then as time went on, they felt that the people needed the Bible in their language. So they uh, felt that the language, uh, the Bible should be translated so that the average person could understand it and it wasn't left in just Latin for the cultural and church elite to understand. So they started to translate the Bible. They started to preach in the streets that they started to preach a New Testament message that sounded different than uh, the Roman Catholic hierarchy of that day. In fact, some of the doctrines that would later get them in trouble, you will probably recognize because it's many doctrines Protestantism holds today. For example, they denied purgatory so that there was no suffering in the afterlife for believers. They denied praying to and for the dead. Some even questioned infant baptism. Some of uh, this Waldensian group held to a more symbolic or spiritual presence of Christ in the Eucharist contrasted with what Roman thought had called transubstantiation, where the bread and wine, the substance of it, would change literally uh, into the physical body and blood of Christ. They also held uh, the papacy uh, to be an anti-Christ-like influence. Again, things that you would almost say are clearly reformational, but this is 900 years ago. This is almost three to 400 years before Martin Luther even lived. The Waldensians also had a developed understanding of the priesthood of all believers and valued translating parts of the Bible into the language of the people. So in 1215, the Roman church officially uh, condemned the Waldensians and Peter Waldo as well and declared them heretical partly because of these beliefs. Now, when you try to study the Waldensians, it is very difficult to find historical records, again, from 900 years ago, uh, that accurately depict their beliefs. Because since the Waldensians were declared heretics, that their work was burned at the stake, so much of, really very little, if any, of the written material survives today. So a lot of the Waldensians or what we understand them to be, is dependent on uh, their their uh, interlocutors, so the Roman Catholic hierarchy, telling us what the Waldensians believed. And we have to be very careful. Um, again, the Roman Catholic Church did not like the Waldensians, so their depictions of Peter Waldo and his followers are not going to be favorable. It's almost like asking a Democrat to tell us about a Republican or a Republican to tell us what a Democrat believes. You're probably going to get a little bit of a biased description. But even with what little we have, we can recognize that many of their beliefs sounds proto-Protestant, or it sounds very Protestant before Protestantism officially launched with Martin Luther. In fact, the Roman hierarchy was so upset with Peter Waldo and his followers, they actually called a crusade, yes, a crusade against the Waldensians 
because of these proto-Protestant beliefs. We're thinking of we're used to thinking of the Crusades as being against the Muslims. Well, we'll find in the Middle Ages that there were Crusades called against other Christians who simply didn't conform to Roman Catholic thought. So these Waldensians were persecuted. They were uh, crusaded against. They were uh, there was essentially an attempted extinction of the Waldensians, but these movements failed. And in fact, you can still find Waldensian churches to this day, but the vast majority of the Waldensians were absorbed into the reformed branch of the Reformation because, again, their beliefs were so similar that they naturally uh, fit together. So let me start here by emphasizing when anyone says to deepen history— is to cease to be Protestant, that Martin Luther created this new church with all these new beliefs. Saints, even if we set aside the church fathers for a moment, 900 years ago in the Middle Ages, we found a group of, uh, of Christians called the Waldensians who denied purgatory, prayer to the dead, venerating or worshiping relics and images, denied the papacy, uh, had a spiritual presence of Christ in the supper, wanted to translate the Bible into the common language. This sounds like Protestantism, does it not? Again, about three to four hundred years before the Reformation, we already have these beliefs forming, and we should not be surprised because the Bible's clear on these issues. And once someone says, I'm going to read the Bible for myself, and I'm not going to let tradition, and I'm not going to let these, uh, the papacy, these uh, other influences shape and, con- and force me to certain interpretations, if we allow Scripture to speak for itself— we should not be surprised that our Protestant beliefs are found throughout church history. Moving forward here, though, there is another group, uh, this time not found in Italy, uh, but found in England. This group is called the Lollards. Um, in fact, this group was began uh, begun by John Wycliffe, who lived in the mid to late 14th century. The Lollards were actually called the Lollards because uh, they would oftentimes memorize scripture and speak it, that they would verbally preach the gospel because they wanted, no surprise here, to translate the Bible into English, just like uh, the Reformers and the Waldensians wanting to bring the Bible to the common man. Uh, but many times they were not allowed to, so they would memorize scripture and then speak it to the common person. So Lollard kind of comes from a word that means mumbler. So they were almost mocked as being called the mumblers because they would mumble scripture. They would speak scripture. So the Lollards began in England uh, from this individual named John Wycliffe. Um, again, a little under 200 years before Martin Luther. Some of their beliefs. They denied purgatory, venerating relics and image. Denied that as well. Had a basic view of sola scriptura. They rejected the belief in transubstantiation. Again, transubstantiation is the understanding that the substance of bread and wine and communion uh, is, is changed physically into the body and blood of Christ. And the idea that without the sacraments, you could not be saved. They were also very critical of the papacy. And again, wanted to uh, translate the scriptures into English or the common tongue of the people. This was a massive group. Um, Wycliffe was uh, essentially kicked out of his teaching post uh, in Oxford, I believe, because of his critique of the Roman Catholic Church. And after he died in the Council of Constance, I believe, in 1415, his body was dug up and burned as a clear picture of what they felt John Wycliffe's beliefs uh, to portray. So the Lollards were also persecuted, um, again, 100 to 150 years before the Reformation, and their beliefs sound eerily, what? Protestant. 
again, denying purgatory, venerating, denying the veneration of relics and images, wanting to translate the Bible into the common tongue, um, rejecting transubstantiation, rejecting the papacy, holding to a higher view of scripture than the Roman counterparts. All of this sounds very reformational. When the Reformation came along, they too were absorbed into the Reformation. So in Italy, you have the Waldensians uh, kind of joining in the Reformation. In England, you have the uh, Lollards joining into the Reformation. You can see a trend here that Martin Luther didn't function in a vacuum, that the Reformation didn't appear out of nowhere, that there were clearly uh, providential workings by God where uh, these groups and these individuals were were helping the Reformation essentially thrive. But we shouldn't stop there because there's even another group before Luther that clearly helped pave the way for the Reformation, and these were called the Hussites. The Hussites were in Bohemia, or modern-day Czech Republic, and was started by a, a theologian named Jan Hus in the early 15th century, so a little bit after John Wycliffe, but still over 100 years before Martin Luther. Uh, these Hussites, and Jan Hus specifically, were deeply influenced by Wycliffe's writings. So again, they rejected transubstantiation. They uh, high, uh, intensely critiqued the papacy. They rejected praying to and for the dead. Uh, many Hussites uh, rejected venerating images and relics. Um, and the most important thing about the Hussites you should keep in mind here is that they believed in taking communion in both kinds. Now, very briefly, what do I mean by this? That in the Last Supper, Jesus said uh, he held up bread, right, and the cup of wine, and he said, take and eat uh, this bread in remembrance of me. Take and drink this wine in remembrance of me. He said, drink the wine, consume the bread. At this point in the uh, late Middle Ages, uh, the Roman Catholic Church withheld the cup of wine from the people and only gave them bread. Uh, they argued because of their doctrine of transubstantiation that the body and blood of Christ was physically present uh, in the bread. Uh, therefore, they only needed one kind. And also, they were so afraid that since, again, the wine transubstantiated into the blood of Christ, that if there was a spilling of the cup, they would disrespect the Lord's blood by spilling it everywhere. So they removed the cup from the laity, and so most uh, Christians of that day only took communion in one kind or by the bread. The Hussites said, no, that's not the historical understanding of the church and the church fathers. No, that's not the New Testament teaching. Rather, Jesus said, take the cup and the bread. So they wanted communion under both kinds, the bread and the cup. So believe not, communion and the Eucharist was a major dividing point here for the Hussites. But again, you can see in all these beliefs, again, rejecting transubstantiation, uh, rejecting the papacy, rejecting praying tune for the dead, um, taking communion of both kinds. All these things are very Protestant. Um, interestingly enough, Jan Huss, Huss was martyred by being burned at the stake at, at the Council of Constance, the same council that burned Wycliffe's body. Uh, he was burned at the stake for these beliefs a hundred years before Martin Luther. Crusades were actually called against the Hussites, again, just like the Waldensians, the Roman church called crusades against the Hussites, and I believe the Hussites won uh, many battles and survived five distinct crusades called against them, and they survived well into the Reformation joining the Protestant churches. Saints, what I want you to see here, and again, this was a broad overview of really over nine. 
900 years of church history because the Waldingians were the 12th century, so almost 900 years ago, we see that there were clearly many Christians in these three groups that did not conform to the Roman hierarchy of, of, of their teaching, and they held to basic biblical truths that are found in the New Testament, all throughout the church fathers, and all throughout the Reformation. The Reformation succeeded providentially not because Martin Luther made something up that was unknown for 1,500 years, but because Martin Luther read the Bible. And there were th at least these three other groups, probably many more, uh, that's held to these teachings, and that's why the Reformation succeeded. The Lollards were already teaching Protestant beliefs and were absorbed into the Reformation. The Hussites were already teaching Protestant beliefs and were absorbed into the Reformation. The Waldensians were already teaching Protestant beliefs and were absorbed into the Reformation. This is, is a big reason why the Reformation succeeded, because it didn't start with Martin Luther. We could go back three to four hundred years before Luther to the Waldensians. We could go back another uh, six, seven hundred years to people like Augustine, John Chrysostom, um, Clement of Rome, uh, Athanasius, and so many others. And most importantly, we can go back 2,000 years ago to the apostles and Jesus himself and find these Protestant beliefs everywhere. So saints, let me encourage you that uh, even though pop Catholic apologetics might lob at you the um, overly simplistic, overused, exaggerated claim, and in my opinion, discredited claim of John Henry Newman, who says to be deep in history is to see some to be Protestant. In reality, when someone actually studies church history for themselves, and most importantly, when someone studies scripture for themselves, they'll be saying to be deep in history and to be deep in scripture necessitates being Protestant. Saints, I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Wow, this is deep stuff. Th issues that need to be talked about today, especially during Reformation Month. So if you are of Reformation heritage, if you're in a Protestant church, I encourage you to be confident in your beliefs and know that it's not a theological novum, that going back to the Waldensians, we can trace our beliefs 900 years. Going back to the church fathers, we can go deeper. And of course, we can go back 2,000 years. If you're from a non-Reformed or non-Protestant church, let me gently challenge you and encourage you to read scripture objectively for yourself, to read church history objectively for yourself. And you'll find very quickly that history is not the uh, one-size-fits-all cookie cutter that many claim it is, but rather it's complex and it's rich because it's filled with God's providence. And when you ultimately go to Scripture itself, the clear, infallible word of the living God, you will find truth there. And I firmly believe that truth is most accurately taught today in churches of the Reformation. God bless you all, and thank you for joining me right here on The Crucible. I will see you next week for another deep dive into theology. God bless you, and have a great week.